Thank you. Thank you so much. It is generally accepted, generally accepted. Let me, uh, let me be sure that I'm telling you the right thing that's generally accepted. Let me get in order here. We're good. We're good. Um, I, I say generally accepted, accepted by a large number of people in the body of Christ, that one of the most um, fruitful and productive churches in America, winning souls and spreading the gospel, sending out missionaries, publishing, is Moody Memorial Church in Chicago. When I've lived in Illinois and people came for a visit, one of the things we tried to do was go to Chicago and see the important places of worship, um, like Wrigley Field and other places. And um, no, seriously, one of the things I always tried to take them by to see was Moody Memorial Church because it was massive. It, it was massive. Their outreach, they were massive on so many fronts. But when you would go to Moody Memorial Church, you felt, it's my experience, that you were the most important person in the world. And the reason you felt that way is way back in the day, uh, Moody Memorial Church was founded in the 1860s. And um, one of the things that was built upon was the idea of one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever won would, uh, would, would believe they could have eternal life. A lot of times the bigger a church gets, the bigger it focuses on crowds. And the easier it is to measure its success by big numbers. But Moody Church has had a history, not of multiplying, but of adding one plus one plus one plus one plus one plus one. And it was a phenomenal church. To understand that, it might be good to understand how D.L. Moody became a Christian to begin with. Uh, High Pickering writes, D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, was 18 years of age and was a boot salesman in his uncle's store in Boston. His Sunday school teacher was Mr. Kimball, and he had his heart set on winning the young man for Christ. After praying about the matter, he arranged to visit him at the boot store. I was determined, to use his own words, to speak to him about Christ and about his soul and started down to Holton's boot store. When I was nearly there, I began to wonder whether I ought to uh, go in just then during business hours. I thought my call might embarrass the boy and that when I went away, the other clerks might ask who I was and taunt him with my efforts in trying to make him a good boy. In the meantime, I had passed the store and discovering this, I determined to make a dash for it and have it over at once. I found him in the back part of the building, wrapping up shoes. I went into him at once and putting my hand on his shoulder, I made what I felt afterwards was a very weak plea for Christ. I don't know just what words I used, nor could Mr. Moody tell me. I simply told him of Christ's love and the love Christ wanted in return. That was all there was. It seemed that the young man was just ready for the light that broke upon him. And there in the back of that store in Boston, D.L. Moody gave himself and his life to Christ. Forty years afterwards, now you got to understand, D.L. Moody had no formal education to be a minister. Um, 
It's generally conceded that he was never officially ordained as a minister. Um, he was known to butcher the king's English. Uh, one famous story, which is one of many, is that after a sermon, uh, you know, it's amazing how a man can preach and hundreds of people come to Christ, but somebody forgets the wonderful good that was been done and then just focuses on negative. I mean, it happens all the time. A lady came up to him and said, I am deeply offended with you, sir. And he thought, well, this is not a new thing. He said, well, what can I do to make it right? He said, what did I do? And she said, you used the word britches. Now britches would be uh, funny in our culture, but it was like mentioning a woman's unmentionables by name or something. And, and uh, he, was, he, he should have said trousers, but he said britches. And uh, he, he honestly didn't remember saying britches. He says, I don't remember saying that. What did I say just before it? Uh, she couldn't remember when he said it. He said, well, what did I say just before it? And she said, well, I don't know that I can remember what you said before you said the word britches. He said, well, what did I say after it? She said, I was so shocked. I didn't hear anything else you said. And D.L. Moody said, well, I think we ought to be thankful that you heard me say britches because it sounds like you didn't get anything else out of my sermon today. <laughs> Forty years afterwards, when preaching in Boston, Mr. Moody himself thus described the effect of the conversion upon his life. I can almost, now he's preaching in, the, in Chicago where he established a church. I can almost throw a stone from Tremont Temple to the spot where I found God 40 years ago. Um, I wish I could do something to lead some of you young men to the same God that I met. He has been a million times better to me than I have ever been to him. I remember the morning on which he came out of my room after I first trusted Christ. I thought the sun shone a good deal brighter than it ever had before. I thought that it was just smiling upon me, and as I walked out upon Boston Common and heard the birds singing in the trees, I thought they were all singing a song to me. Do you know I fell in love with the birds? I've never cared for them before. It seemed to me that I was in love with all creation. I had not a bitter feeling against any man, and I was ready to take all men to my heart. If a man has not the love of God shed abroad in his heart, he has not yet been regenerated. And D.L. Moody was, he was pastor, but he was considered an evangelist. And he helped the American church to understand that building the kingdom, God can do great things with great numbers, with, at great moments. And we celebrate that. But he said, the church must never forget that God builds his kingdom one person at a time. Now, I believe that we are coming upon a season when God is going to bring in a great harvest. I believe that with all of my heart. I really do. But um, I also think if we're not careful, we will just sit back and try to find the right programs. We, we will sit back and forget that every person that comes to the knowledge of Jesus Christ must be prayed in, not programmed in. It has been said, and I think rightly so, that churches today, uh, even in our fastest growing churches, have been training men and women how to be great CEOs instead of great prayers. 
It's been training them how to be great storytellers instead of great proclaimers of the word of God. <coughs> so I want to follow the lead of Jesus. And I want us to read Luke chapter 15, which is sometimes called the lost chapter of the Bible because it deals about lost things. And you'll be interested to find two surprises. When Jesus talked about the whole world coming to know God, he illustrated it by talking about three individual things. One lost sheep, one lost coin, one lost son. And we love to tell the stories but we don't really understand the dynamic of the story until we understand that Jesus didn't tell these stories for sinners. Now, it certainly works. Boy, if you want to come to Jesus, you want to understand what you're up against uh, by, by trying to live life without Jesus, go to Luke chapter 15. But Jesus told these stories for the benefit of the Pharisees. The men that were considered the greatest, are you ready for this? The greatest defenders of truth, the greatest soul winners in the kingdom of God. They were men that had started off valiantly. Their, their name meant um, uh, separated ones or holy ones. And the, the title Pharisee basically means those that are separated unto God. But when you read the life of Jesus, Except for the Sadducees and the scribes, there's nobody that Jesus had more trouble with, even the Romans, than the Pharisees. Strange. Strange that those that have the most orthodox doctrine can be the ones that miss the truth about the harvest. Um, now, this doesn't mean that all Pharisees were evil. There were good and godly Pharisees. I believe Gamaliel uh, had a good heart and, and was on a journey to discover Christ as Savior, even though in the book of Acts, he was not seen as such to that point. I think Nicodemus, um, and I want to recommend a video series to you. It's called The Chosen. Season one is out, and I think every Christian ought to watch that eight or ten times. And I love particularly the portrayal of Nicodemus as a man who has been blinded by a system, but all of a sudden is faced with incontrovertible truth about Jesus. And the first season has Nicodemus dealing with, I know this, but I'm learning this. And he's going to come to the Lord. Um, in M.C. Tenney's book called New Testament Survey, which is a great book, he quotes uh, the scholar Kohler who lists seven types of Pharisees. This is how the Pharisees were known generally. First of all, there was the shoulder Pharisee. A shoulder Pharisee paraded his good deeds before men like a badge on his shoulder. There was the wait a little Pharisee that while you were walking down the road with him, he would often make you stop while he found someone he could do a good deed to, to make show of. Then uh, there was, I love this one, there was the bruised and bleeding Pharisee. He was called the bruised and bleeding Pharisee because he was constantly bruising himself and cutting himself, walking into walls because he shut his eyes to avoid seeing a woman. Number four, there was the pestle Pharisee 
who walked with hanging the head rather than observing alluring temptations. He just walked like this. Number five, the ever reckoning Pharisee who was always counting his good deeds to see if his good deeds outweighed his bad. And then there were a small segment, a remnant of that group of Pharisees. And the Pharisees were a small group. There were, there were less than 2,500 Pharisees, it's, it's estimated, in all the land of Israel. Um, there was the God-loving Pharisee that was like Abraham. Now, um, that's whom Jesus was talking to. He was talking to people that it was said that upwards of 80 to 85% were so misguided. Jesus called them blind leaders of the blind, but they were at the top of the pecking order religiously. Now, let's read what Jesus said. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. See, now you got to understand these three stories were brought about because they got mad that Jesus was reaching out to the lost. Doesn't he leave? He, he has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in that same way, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now that doesn't mean the shepherd doesn't value the 99. But he does not let his joy be based on those that are saved. He lets his joy be based on that number is growing. And even if it's one at a time, I celebrate. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully till she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's a rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So when one person comes, there's joy in heaven. There's rejoicing with angels. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen that, of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father. I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up, went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. 
He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. Now, the Pharisees probably stopped with, yes, we we celebrate when someone comes to their senses. Praise God. (laughs) But Jesus wasn't through telling the story. The Pharisees thought they were the father. But they weren't the father. They were the older brother. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Here's the central truth I'd like for us to wrap our heads around today. We are accustomed to thinking of more as better. That's what church growth experts have taught us over the last 30 years. More is better. I've even had a growth church, uh, growth church, church growth expert say to me in an interview, he said, uh, Look, we don't have time to waste our time on people who just see one. We see thousands. And that's why God is blessing us. And I, I, I wept for him, not there in front of him, but I really did because of having such a, a misguided view. He's like the Pharisees who misunderstood and thought that more is better and they lost the value of the one. His purposes advance in ways that we often misunderstood. Now, let me, let me go to the big picture. There's the big picture, the, the macro and the micro. It is true, and, and scriptural truth is often two opposing truths held at tension. And balance is walking out the land between those two opposing views. For instance, God is not willing that any should perish. That that doesn't mean that nobody will perish. It means that God does not want anyone to perish. Um, But you see Jesus in doing the, the big work of redeeming the world. He was never too busy to speak to one man. Or one woman. And churches that are representing God, right, have to do both. You know, I talked about D.L. Moody a bit. Now, bear with me. We're going to rush through this so that we're within our general time frame. But um, 
D.L. Moody in 1871 um, was preaching on a Sunday night, October, uh, I believe it was October 8th, but he was preaching and he decided that he would do something he'd never done before. He was preaching from the text where referring to Pilate, uh, Pilate says, what would you have me do then with this Jesus who is called the Christ? And he said, uh, I'm, I'm going to do something that I've never done before tonight. He said, there are many of you that don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And I'm going to end the service asking you that question. What will you do with this Jesus who is called the Christ? I want you to come back next Sunday and be prepared to give an answer. He was trying to be dramatic. He was trying to be effective. Even as they were dismissing service, they heard the fire bells begin to ring because a matter of a couple hours early, the great Chicago fire had broken out. And he sent people home. Moody's church, well, it was really a Sunday school annex and a YMCA building that he preached in. They were destroyed by fire. Moody's own home was destroyed by fire. Moody would say later, the only thing I saved was my reputation and my Bible. His wife grabbed a picture of him from off the mantle as they ran out of their homes and the, uh, their home. And the only thing when the fire was gone that he could find was two little toy, um, I think it was toy trucks that belonged to his children. That was all that was saved. 300 people died. Um, in those days, in, in Chicago especially, most of the buildings were built out of wood. Even the shingles were wood. And if you couldn't afford wood shingles, you had tar spread over your roof. So the whole city was just a, a kindling box ready to go up. It was estimated that perhaps as many as a dozen people were in Moody's congregation of 2,500 that night when he said, you think about it this week. You think about it this week. He didn't know if they were lost, but he wondered. He said, the thing that haunts me, and it haunted him for the rest of my life, is I was trying to be, my words, um, uh, kind of uh, tricky with the way I handled a big crowd. But he said, there are those that may have gone to hell because I forgot the vision of the one. I forgot the vision of the one. And Moody said, I will never tell someone to put off a decision for Christ. You say, well, what if they don't understand everything they need to understand? It was Moody who originally said, all they really need to understand is that they are a big sinner and Jesus is a big savior. We can fill in the rest for them through Sunday school and through, through teaching and training. And Moody, God blessed him so much, blessed him so much because he understood the big picture. He says, God is going to bring us a great harvest. And Lebanon's, I don't know of a single church in America that has just pound for pound, number for number, a bigger harvest than Moody Memorial Church. But I'm saying God did it not because of their mass evangelism, although they did plenty of that. They did, he did it because Moody never lost sight of one plus one plus one. And the cry of this pastor's heart, God is about to do something extraordinary in our church. I really do believe that. But I want you to understand it won't happen if you just sit back and say, okay, let's watch. It will only happen as you realize that one plus one plus one, plus one, is how the church grows. 
I want us to leave today understanding that one person matters. See, that's the first point. God's arithmetic. Uh, this was a tailor-made lesson for the religious leaders of Israel. He had, he had already showed them this by talking about the widow that had given just a penny, uh, our equivalency, just a penny in the offering. But she was overlooked by everyone. But God said, I noticed that. You need to notice that. There was the value of the children. Children weren't considered um, um, by the Pharisees. They were considered, well, maybe they'll grow into value, but they have no intrinsic value. But the scriptures tell us, the Old Testament tells us plainly that scriptures are the heritage of the Lord. The, I mean, the children are the heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward. God has always valued children more than, than society would tell us to value them. And that's why the disciples were saying, we've got a campaign to run here. We've got some preaching to do. We've got some decision cards to fill out. Get these children back. And Jesus says, don't ever push the children away. Don't ever neglect the children. Have them come to me. Don't forbid children to ever approach me. And he said, I'll tell you why. Because if you don't understand children, you don't understand what the kingdom of God is like. The overturned tables. Boy, Jesus, we, we know what that means. Missionettes better not sell desserts in the foyer. We know what that means. Loved ones, please. Do you honestly think God's concerned about missionettes selling brownies? I mean, is that some grievous sin? No, I tell you why Jesus overturned the temple, uh, tables in the temple. And you need to hear this. Jesus gets furious with people who make it hard for someone to get to father. That's what the tables were about. It wasn't merchandise. It was, here's people that have come from all over the land. Some of them have put their lives on hold, their businesses on hold. They've come to approach the Father. And just when they get inside of the temple, you say, oh, yes, welcome, welcome. <laughs> welcome, come to service. Just pay the temple tax and you can go on in. Uh, well, this is all we've got. Well, I'm sorry, we don't accept money from that region. You can exchange your money. Uh, nobody seemed to notice except Jesus and a few others that the exchange rate was exorbitant. Nobody seemed to notice except Jesus and a few others that even though your lamb was spotless and according to Old Testament requirements, they seemed to find something wrong with it. But don't worry, you can buy another lamb over here. And you know, you, I can buy a $12 lamb for just $300. You see, when Jesus starts chunking stuff, it's not because of what we think usually. When Jesus starts chunking stuff, we need to stop and say, what is he upset about? You know, we, 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 we're becoming pretty prolific with hearing God, but we're not nearly as good with understanding God as we are with hearing him. You know, like the fellow that he asked a beautiful girl, he said, what are the chances of us maybe getting together, getting married, having children and living happily after ever, uh, ever, uh, ever after? And, and um, she said, it's, um, it's about a million to one. And he grins and says, she says, I'm one in a million. <laughs> That's not what she said. 
And it took people a while to understand that Jesus wasn't trying to disrupt worship in the temple. He was trying to free worship in the temple. And I want to say this to every pastor, to every church, to every board, to every whatever. Whenever you make it hard for someone to approach father, you run the risk of having your table overturned. Well, that's good preaching. It's so good. I'm going to move on. What are the lessons? What are the lessons of Luke chapter 15? There's two basic lessons. Jesus wants it to be understood very plainly. I said he was preaching to the Pharisees, but there is a secondary lesson. And hear me, whether you're listening at home or here or months later online, Jesus wants you to understand the condition of the sinner. It, it's very important. I, I'm, you know, I'm not anti-church. I, I'm not anti-Pharisee. I, I, I think whenever the church begins to act like Pharisees, we need correction. But one thing the Pharisees did right, they blew it way out of proportion, is they understood that a sinful man or woman cannot approach God. Something has to happen. Now, they took that truth and made it stupidity. But at least they understood the condition of the sinner. And loved ones, we look at these stories. We need to understand that until we come to Jesus, we are as weak as a lost sheep. Now, the good side of it is that every one of us is worth finding. Every one of us is worth finding. No matter what's happened to you, no matter what you've done, no matter what guilt you're carrying right now, you are worth finding. The shepherd leaves the flock to find you and bring you home. Now, let me tell you why. I, I, I wish God had caught. See, I like it when he says we're like mighty lions or mighty eagles. But that's, that's not what we're designated as. We're designated as sheep. There's three things I know about sheep. Number one, they're dumb. You say, you calling me dumb? I'm calling all of us sheep dumb. You can go to the circus. You never have a, a, a sheep show. <laughs> That's why they need shepherds. You know that sheep will be just so uh, intrigued with their eating. Sheep have been known to just eat grass and walk off the edge of a cliff because they don't look up to see where they're going. That's why the, the, the tool of a shepherd is a staff with a hook or, or crook on the end because not only does he need to defend and not only does he need to prod, there are times sheep get in places, the only thing you can do is just put that hook underneath their shoulders and pull them out of the mess they're in. They're not only dumb, but they're defenseless. Now we all have known some sheep who do bite, but sheep are basically defenseless animals. Um, they, they're so uh, defenseless that without a shepherd, they're just easy pickings. They're easy pickings for whatever animal of prey wants them. They're dumb, they're defenseless, and they're also dependent. Do you know that a sheep can lay down and because of digestive issues, sometimes he can't even get up without the help of the shepherd. He'll lay there and die because he can't get up without the help of the shepherd. So we are as weak as lost sheep. If without Jesus, you may think you could pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Without Jesus, you may think that you're as good as the next guy. But the fact of the matter is all of us are as bad. We may not be as bad as we can be. I don't think that's what total depravity means. We, but we are totally depraved. That doesn't mean we're, we're as bad as we can be. All of us do good things from time to time. All of us, because of society, keep from doing some things that our flesh might tell us. No, none of us are as bad 
as we could be. You say, no, none of us are as bad. But I'll tell you this, all of us are as bad off as we can be. You see, if we're trying to jump to the moon, if I try to jump from the Dead Sea, you know, like the lowest place on earth, I cannot possibly get to the moon. But if I go to the highest place on earth, if I go to Mount Everest and try to jump from there, that's thousands of feet of difference. I still am no more successful in jumping to the moon from Mount Everest than I am from the Dead Sea. What does that mean? This person has many advantages. This person has no advantages, but neither of us are going to reach the moon. We're as bad off as we can be. So we're as weak as a lost sheep. We're as worthless as lost silver. You know, you can have a thousand dollar bill, but if you can't find it, you ain't got it. This teaches us on the good side that every destiny is worth reclaiming. We could have just said, well, I lost that one, but I've got nine silver coins. But you got to understand this coin, this coin, uh, we, we're not sure if this is what Jesus was talking about, but we know that uh, especially in well-to-do families and sometimes in poorer families, it would be the project of a lifetime to put together 10 small coins and weave them into a headband. And when a man took a woman as his wife, um, one of the things he gave her as a token of his love and trust was a headband with 10 silver coins in it. And she would wear that. And I, I, I'll admit this was seldom done because it was such a hurtful, shameful thing, but it did happen. Whenever she disappointed him, and especially something grievous like adultery, he had the right to, uh, to divorce her. But if he wanted to keep her, he could keep her as his wife. But what he would do is this, he would take a silver coin. And every place she went, they would say, she's a failure. She failed to keep her vow. She failed to please her husband. And can you imagine what that would mean to a woman who loved her husband and loved her children and one of the coins fell out? I mean, she's going to go to the well the next day and, hey, Mary, hey, Elizabeth, you know, hey, whore, how are you? you know, no, you don't want to wear that. And you're going to find that lost coin. You're going to find that lost coin. Now, it was lost in darkness. It was lost in dirtiness. It was lost in disgrace. And Jesus said, when that lost coin is found, it's no longer worthless. Now it is a trophy of grace and love. So we're as weak as a lost sheep. We're as worthless as lost silver. But I want to tell you the one that's best known to us is we're as wretched as a lost son. He was in depression, disgrace, dissatisfaction. He was not a sheep and he was not a piece of silver, but he was a human being. <clears throat> and Jesus is driving home the point to the Pharisees that... Uh, um, this is, this is, you may not get a lot of emotion stirred up over a sheep. You may not get a lot of emotion stirred up over a woman's lost coin because women weren't held in high esteem by the Pharisees to begin with. They had a daily prayer that said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a sinner. I mean, seriously, they prayed this. Thank you that I'm not a sinner. I thank you that I'm not a Gentile. I thank you that I'm not a woman. That was their testimony. Can you imagine starting service with that chorus? You know? <laughs> Women were held in such low esteem. But he said, I want to talk to you not about a sheep or a, or a, or a woman that has grief. I want to talk to you about a son that's lost. Because every Pharisee understood that. 
And he said, you need to understand this because you think that you are the good son and everybody else is the bad son. Let's go to number three on your outline. The older brother was missing out on life with his father. That, that's the first thing we need to see. That's the first thing Jesus was trying to tell them. You think you are the good son, but you have lost out on relationship with your father. Now, the, 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 ask yourself a question. Don't point to anybody. Just ask yourself this question. Are you serving the Lord and you realize that your life is typified by letter A? Nothing has been withheld, but nothing has been enjoyed. Nothing has been withheld, but nothing has been enjoyed. And when you and I don't, if we don't realize that we're missing out on life with the Father. See, I, I went to Moody Church and felt like I was the most important visitor they'd had in 25 years. I went to another church that's internationally known. I could tell you the name of the pastor. He's internationally known. I've been there three times. You say, why would you go three times if it was such a bad experience? Because I couldn't believe it was such a bad experience. I thought I'd just come on a bad Sunday. And it was the same time. It was the same thing every week. I was not valued. They wanted to know if I matched up with their, with their statement and in, on one occasion, instead of leading me to the Lord, if I was such a rank sinner, they tried to get me to renounce Pentecostalism because they were confident I was demonized. So I thought about the sons of Sceva and I thought, I wonder if I can take this group, but I didn't. Because if you miss out, oh, they were perfectly rigid. They, they, they were perfectly orthodox. Their doctrine, there was nothing that was wrong, but their heart was wrong. And when you miss out on life with the father, you miss out on life with your brothers as well. We tend to complain about the people that aren't ready to meet God. You know what we, we tend to complain about them as this son of yours, but the father says this brother of yours. You see, the first thing we need to understand is the condition of the sinner. We are weak, we're worthless, we're wretched. But the second thing we need to understand is the compassion of the Savior. I've said this and I'm going to say it one more time. The thing that we must learn as we move into 2021, and I'm saying this, now this is our church. I'm saying it to any church that will listen, to any pastor that will listen. But I'm saying this to Christian life. We will not inherit what God has planned for us until we recover our tears. We've got to be grieving for the lost. We haven't even been grieving for each other. We've been arguing among ourselves in many instances. Now, and not everybody and not even a majority, not even a significant number. But I want to tell you, we've got to get rid of the this son of yours attitude and embrace again, this brother of mine attitude. See, it's, it's like dealing with things like gay marriage and issues that, that concern us deeply, compromising the word of God. I know that God, and, I'm, and I say this unashamedly, it's something that can get us in trouble one day, but I, I say this unashamedly, God is not going to bless churches 
in the future. He is not going to bless churches that deny his word and, and fail to call sin, sin. He will not bless that. But I also want you to understand, neither will he bless angry churches that are self-righteous. Churches that are right doctrinally, but wrong dispositionally. God's not going to use the compromisers, but neither is God going to use angry churches. But if God can find churches that will recover their tears, I mean, if we can learn to weep over the lost, if we can learn to weep over the sins of people and including our own sins, then we're in a position that God can begin to do something. Now let's wrap this up. What are the Christian life lessons? There's five things, really four and a half, but number one, God allows seasons of shaking in order to let things settle. Now we're tired of the word shaking. I'm tired of the word shaking. Um, but we need to understand that shaking is part of the kingdom. Now we know that Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly. We know that he, you know, life, you know, peace, joy, and love. That's the mark of the kingdom. Kingdom of God is not works, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We, we understand this. Jesus came to make our life better. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. But those tensions, those truths that are held at tension, Jesus also said, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now we've got to balance that out. And what this means basically is this. Jesus said, I've come to redeem you. I've come to make your life better. But, but part of the process of making your life better is shaking you to pieces so that you let go of what is not part of the kingdom. That's a difficult thing for us to understand, but God will allow seasons of shaking in order to let things settle. Number two, when things do settle, we generally need to refocus. You see, we're always moving forward. Even when God shakes us and throws us down, it feels like it's because he's put us down at a higher and a better place and we're moving forward. And here's number three. When things do settle, we find that we must deal with unfamiliar and sometimes unwanted elements. Jesus described it this way. He said, new wine needs new wine skins. He said, whenever new wine is poured into an old wine skin, that wine skin's already done all the stretching it's going to do. So as the wine expands, the old wine skin that may have served for years is no longer able to hold the, wine, the, the, the new wine, so it explodes. Jesus said, for every new thing I do in your life, you've got to have the capacity to stretch with what I'm doing. Here's the question. Will the new wine that he's bringing to us cause us to explode or to enlarge? And it's up to us. Here's the fourth thing. We need to learn as, as we're preparing, we are, we are preparing for our church to double and triple in size. We are preparing to find ways to house a congregation that can't fit on campus here. We, we are thinking outside the box. And, um, and, and you say, How, what are we going to do? I have no idea. I have no idea. 
But, um, you know, when I, I'm, I'm going to be like General Patton, you know, when, when uh, Omar Bradley said, uh, Patton said, this is what we need to do is the Battle of the Bulge. And um, Omar Bradley said, do you have a plan? And he said, we certainly do. And uh, they didn't believe him. So they looked at his um, executive officers and says, do you have a plan? They said, yes, sir. Just a few final details and we will have this plan. When will you have it? We'll have it by this afternoon. They walked out and they looked at Patton and said, we don't have a clue what we're going to do. And he said, it's so seldom that you get a chance to do the miraculous. Always be attitudinally ready to do the miraculous. And they did. They did. Well, unfamiliar and unwanted elements. Ask God. This is what we're asking God. When we, when we plan for the harvest, ask God for the one. You say, but, but Pastor, I want thousands. I want thousands. Let me just put it to you this way. Do you know that in 2021, if every member of Christian life, online, youngest to the oldest, if every member of Christian life was just responsible for bringing one person into the kingdom, do you know that would mean over 2,500 people are added to the church? Just if everybody just won one. And what about the overachievers? Ask God for Nicodemus moments. The world has changed because of an interview with one man. Ask him for Jacob's well moments. The whole course of the church was changed because Jesus took time for one woman and not even a grade A woman by the church's standards. Look for the lame man moments. This man had been passed by for years. I don't know if you've ever thought about this because we don't, like, we don't like this. But the lame man was passed by, by Jesus as far as we know at least a half dozen times. Because Jesus only did what he did in accordance with Father's will. But how do you know if you might be passing by someone that has been passed by for years and all of a sudden it's you and God's time. Oh, it's amazing. This is the last thing. We're asking God to so move in our services. We want to see multitudes come, but we are asking God to so structure our mind so that every service celebrates a one moment. I mean, we, we want to see, we want to see crowds, but we want our services to be Every week, somebody called in and said, let me tell you what I learned today and what I want from watching online. Every day, we want someone to leave because even though they're just one, they had an encounter with the true and the living God. Long after Moody was gone, when they were still meeting in rented buildings and long before Moody Church was built, they had receive pastor after pastor that live by this vision of the one. It was, if you're going to pastor this church, you had to have the vision of the one. There was a man named John Harper who was a pastor in England. Um, he had done phenomenal work in Glasgow and in, and in London. And they asked him to come and be the pastor of Moody Memorial Church. 
Name was John Harper. He was a widow. He had a six-year-old daughter that was traveling from England to New York, then to Chicago to become the new pastor of Moody Church. So John Harper and his daughter boarded the Titanic and started going across. And you know the story of the Titanic. But let me tell you the story of John Harper. He was a widow with a six-year-old girl. So when the ship started going down, a, a widower, I should say, widowers were considered the same as a widow because this was the only parent this child had. So they told him to come on board the lifeboat. And he said, no, take my daughter and I have work to do. So his daughter sat there and she watched her father, six-year-old father, she watched him do this, going from person to person, knowing that they were about to die. Excuse me, sir, is Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of your life? And over the course of that two or three hours before the ship went down, he led a handful of people to the Lord and gave their life to him. His daughter saw him do this. He went to one man and said, will you accept, he gave, presented the gospel and said, will you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And the man, the man said, there's, there's hundreds of people that need your help. I don't need it. And he said, will you accept Jesus? The man said, no. And John Harper had already told them that he was not going to go on a boat. So he took his own life jacket off. There weren't enough. He took his own life jacket off, gave it to the man who refused Christ and said, sir, you need this far more than I do. And he went from person to person. When the ship finally went down before, and he didn't have long, he was, he was in the frigid waters and life expectancy was measured in seconds, not much more than that. But in the minutes that he survived, he swam from person to person, presented the gospel, led them to Jesus, one person after another. And... Um, there was a man that gave a testimony in Moody Church years later that was on the Titanic. He said, I was picked up by one of the lifeboats. He said, I was in the water freezing to death. This man swam to me and presented the gospel to me. And I refused. I said, no. You know, he tried to sound tough. And, oh, if I didn't, if I need God, I, I'm not going to wait a last minute to call on him. And and Harper presented the gospel to him one more time, one more time. And the guy in tears moved by the Holy Spirit said, yes, I want Jesus. John Harper trembling almost uncontrollably, almost couldn't be understood. He was shaking. He led the man in a sinner's prayer and the man gave his heart to the Lord. He said that Harper turned and realizing he couldn't live much longer, couldn't get to anybody else. He said his last words were, he pointed to others and he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. He turned back to this one man and said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And then sank under the water. In just a moment, this man was picked up. And he said, I've thought about those words, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. He said, well, I did and I was and I'm the last convert 
of Pastor John Harper. And the reason I say that, the article that contains that testimony talks about the numbers of people in Glasgow and London that were won to the Lord. But the, the number, the thousands of people won to the Lord by Harper, they were one, one at a time. One at a time. You see, it takes a compassionate heart in the middle of a titanic circumstance to go from one to one and present the gospel. Nah, I want to tell you something. We're not going to win a multitude of people by a great program. I hope we can have some great programs. We're not going to win a multitude by great sermons. I hope that God will help me to preach some great sermons. But I want to tell you, if this church fulfills her destiny, it'll be because we put our arm around our neighbor. It'll be because we care about the person that we're working next to. It'll be because we realize that our children have a destiny for God and it may be up to us to lead them there. Yeah, harvest is coming, but it's gonna be one at a time. And you say, oh, but pastor, you know there are services where God saves hundreds of people or there are things that happen where God saves thousands of people. Yeah, but I can guarantee you almost without exception, those hundreds of thousands are ones who have been inf influenced by somebody on a one-to-one -one basis. Would you stand with me, please? Father, in Jesus' name, we ask for your help. Lord, if there is anyone here that does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray that they will come forward here or in Brown Chapel. If they're watching online, let them call the number that's on the screen. And people are waiting to answer your call and to pray with you. Father, help us, help us to understand that great Chicago fires happen and the sinking of the Titanic happens. But in the midst of those disasters, coronavirus happens. But in the midst of those disasters, there's still the call to a one. Whosoever will, let him come and drink freely of the water of life. Whosoever will, let him come, and I will never cast that one aside. All of heaven is riveted on you. They measure time differently. They count differently. They walk differently. All of heaven is focused on you and the opportunity you have to receive Jesus as Lord. I'm going to be through here in 30 seconds. And when I'm done, I'm going to ask you to come forward if you want to give your life to Jesus. The altar workers, go ahead and begin to move into place out in the hallway. If you want to give your heart to Jesus or you have a special need that you need prayer for, I'm going to ask you to come right now. Would you begin to come right now? Ministry teams, if you'd go ahead and move into place, if you want to come, they're there. They're, you're already, you're ahead of the game. Okay. Um, if you're listening online, call. This is what I believe. God is about to bring the greatest harvest this church has ever seen. And like a, like a mighty 
thunderstorm, it may begin one drop at a time, one person at a time. The key to a family coming to Christ is sometimes one person. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved and your house. Thank you for watching today. Thank you for being here today. Call us or join us in the prayer ministry uh, if, if you have needs today. We love you. Uh, don't forget to be here Wednesday night. Next Sunday, Pastor, uh, Pastor Corey is going to be preaching. He's going to straighten out everything I've said in the last few weeks. Um, and then the following Sunday, I'm going to be back and we're going to talk about, as we move into 2021, dealing with past failures. Let's settle those things as we move forward with God's special grace. I love you. God bless you. May the Lord be with you in all things.